James chapter 4, 13. James chapter 4 starting verse 13 now listen you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city spend a year there carry on business and make money why do you not know what will happen tomorrow what is your life you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes instead you ought to say if it is the Lord's will we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the, in the face of suffering, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. It's the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray, shall we? Father, thanks again so much for giving us your word. And we we pray now that you would just, by your spirit, be um, freeing us from those things that distract our minds, helping us to focus on you. And Lord, that you would be uh, shaping and reshaping our, our minds and our hearts that uh, we would be people who uh, look forward to the coming of Jesus and live our lives in the here and the now with that reality. And we pray these things now in the precious name of our Saviour. Amen. Lotto pair on the dole. Battlers blow a fortune in a year. Uh, that was the headline that was splashed right across the front page of the Brisbane Sunday Mail a number of years back when we were in, up in Queensland. Uh, a year earlier, they had done a story about a couple who'd won, I think it was, it was half a million dollars in the lottery, 
Uh, that was a while ago now, and understand these days the, um, <clears throat> the prizes are a bit bigger than that. But the TV ads for lotteries haven't changed much over the years, have they? Um, they tell us that if you win the big one, that you will have power. You'll have the power to tell the boss what you really think of his job. Uh, you'll have the power to go and buy yourself a big luxury house. Uh, you'll have the power to live the li rest of your life in comfort and in security. Well, 12 months later, 12 months down the track, uh, this couple had wasted all of their money. They were now back on social security and they were hoping to win the big one a second time. <laughs> How they spent their money makes for some really, pretty interesting reading. They, they started off by doing the right thing. They went and spent $6,000 getting financial advice which they then did not follow. <laughs> and then they went and uh, uh, splurged on a $15,000 holiday to that most exotic of locations, the Gold Coast. <laughs> and on and on it went. Uh, the husband said, and I quote, half a million dollars isn't enough money to set you up for the life. It's only enough money to get you in trouble. End of quote. Uh, he reckoned that he calculated it would take $13 million to set him up for the rest of his life. Now, of course, you know, this is, this is not always what happens when people win the lottery. There's plenty of people that win the lottery and then just go and pay off the mortgage and do something nice and responsible with it and so on. But it is a story which sells tabloid newspapers. And uh, it raises an important issue, I believe, uh, it's an issue that affects us all in one way or another because I think it, it's true to say that uh, in one way or another that we are all tempted at times to think that money uh, gives us the power to control our futures. Now money of course does give us power, doesn't it? Uh, money is stored power. It, uh, uh, it gives us the power to, to go out and to purchase the necessities of life and, uh, and the luxuries of life as well for our enjoyment. And that's, that's a good thing. That's, that's absolutely fine. God, uh, God, wants to, God gives us good things to enjoy and, quite frankly, not having enough money for food, for shelter, for clothing, for medicine, well, that's not a whole lot of fun either. So money is good. Money does give us a certain amount of power, but... How much trust should we place in money? Especially when it comes to seeing money as the means by which we can control our futures. Well, that's kind of what James chapter 4 and chapter 5 passage we're looking at today is all about. I'm actually going to stop one verse shy of the passage that uh, Evelyn read for us. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 4 verses 13 down through to, to chapter 5 verse 11. And we're going to be looking at the issue of uh, where we place our trust for the future. Now, James begins in chapter 4, verse 12, verse 13, with a call to attention. He says, listen up. Uh, and he addresses uh, business people who have worked out a strategic business plan for themselves. Now, 
Uh, there's no doubt that there would have been business people in the congregations to whom James's letter uh, found its way. But whether or not he's specifically um, talking to actual business people uh, or whether he's hypothetically speaking to uh, business people as a means of teaching us all uh, good truths about uh, life and what we value in life, I tend to think it's the latter because he doesn't actually address these people as being brothers and sisters. He doesn't address them as Christians. And as we'll see later on, uh, the destiny of some of these people isn't all that great. So it seems that James is writing, in order to teach all Christians some important truths, and therefore, uh, if you're not someone who's made your business plan for next year, uh, you actually still do need to listen to this. Uh, Listen up. Listen to what James is having to say. Now, verse 13, let me just read it for you just to recap. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Do you remember a story that Jesus once told about this farmer? who had His soil was particularly good. It, uh, it uh, generated a particularly good crop. And then uh, over time he said to himself, look, you know, I'm on easy street here. Uh, I've got so, you know, he had so much harvest that he actually got, had to go and buy, build some additional barns to store all of, the, uh, all of the grain. And he thought, you know, I can retire, I can sit back, I can relax, I can take it easy, I can live the rest of my life. And, you know, you know the, living the dream, that's what he thought. And you remember what the Lord said to him? The Lord said, you fool. This very night, your life will be taken from you. See, here's a guy who, uh, uh, who thought that um, he had security. And that's the problem with wealth, isn't it? The problem with, with wealth, wealth is that it can lull us into a false sense of security. Uh, we think that money gives us the, future, the, the, the power to control uh, our lives and our future. Um, but it doesn't. It doesn't do that. Uh, Here in verse 13, James says that when this businessman makes his plans, uh, he often does so with with no thought uh, that his future, indeed uh, every breath of his life, every breath that he takes, uh, depends not on his money but depends rather on his creator. Now, the Bible's not against us making plans. Indeed, it's, it's wise to make plans, isn't it? Uh, the, the Proverbs are full of that kind of stuff, that uh, in times of plenty, what does a wise person do? Well, they store up grain for the, uh, the lean times. It was interesting how Joseph did that for Egypt, didn't he, uh, under God's leading. And for us, I guess, that planning our finances, if we're able to do so, if we're able to plan our finances so that we can provide for our future and be less dependent on others, then that's a good thing. But when we make those plans, 
And no matter what our stage of life, and we're in different stages of life here, aren't we? Um, whether we're, uh, uh, we're <clears throat> you know, about to leave home for the first time in our lives, uh, whether we're starting a family or a new business or a new job or whether we're thinking about retirement or whether we're in retirement, whatever our life stage, uh, we make plans with the firm conviction that despite our resources, that we do not control our future. Instead, James says that we should be saying, if it is the Lord's will, we will, A, live, and B, we'll do this or, or that. Uh, you don't know whether you're going to live, do you? We don't know what will happen tomorrow. We don't know what illness or what accident or what difficulties uh, might befall us. I think it's a bit old-fashioned these days when we're talking about our plans to say the words, Lord willing. Have you noticed that? It seems to have gone out of fashion a little bit. Uh, or, uh, you know, when we're writing our plans down uh, using the letters DV, which I looked up on Wikipedia, it actually means Dio Valenti, which is Latin for if the Lord be willing. Bit old-fashioned, isn't it? But, uh, hey, um, the conviction behind that is absolutely right. Uh, it is good to make plans, but to do so with that rightful humility which says, I'm not in control. And that what really matters to God may not actually be our 10-year strategic life plan uh, for, or, or our business plan or our plans for our career or whatever. What does matter to God is how I live my life day by day. Because, you know, it's possible to so pursue your plan for the future that you've got such a tunnel vision that you neglect the good and the godly and the right and the sometimes seemingly insignificant things that, um, that God, God wants us to do day by day, week by week, year by year. And I kind of think that that makes sense of verse 17 because verse 17, at first glance, it seems to not fit in with what he's saying. But if you have a look at verse 17, it says, anyone then, so it's therefore, this is connected with what he said, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, he sins. You might be pursuing your goals, but you know there's certain good things that you need to do for God and you just forget about those things in order to achieve your goals. And that, of course, um, is what they call the sins of omission. Uh, and sins of omission, that's when we, when we don't do the things which we should do. Um, what's the opposite to a sin of omission? It's a sin of commission. And that's when we do do the things that we know that we ought not to do. And it seems that um, what, Jen, what James then moves on to is uh, people who are actually acting in a way which, is, which they know is wrong. Uh, th sins of commission. 
He talks about, um, well, you've heard about the golden rule, haven't you? What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I was kind of thinking the golden rule is that he who owns all the gold makes up all the rules. <laughs> and Because uh, that's what this he seems, seems to move on to because in verses one, chapter 5, verses 1 through to 6, James again calls people to listen and this time he says, Now listen, you rich people. Again, I take it that he's speaking to everyone as a way of teaching us to understand life rightly. And in these verses, we see the obvious temptation for rich people. Uh, the power that their wealth gives them is sometimes the power over other people and uh, therefore oppression. Um, read, have, have a look at chapter 5, verse 4. He says, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. It's reminiscent, is it not, of um, uh, God speaking to Moses and saying that the cries of your people in Egypt have reached my ears. Uh, and uh, so here we see these are people who've they've craved after wealth, they've lived it up, they've ignored God, and they've ignored the well-being of other people. They haven't paid what they owed. Verse 5. He says, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Uh, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. I like that image, don't you? It's a fascinating image. That you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Has anyone here ever eaten Wagyu beef? I, have no, I don't think I could afford to eat Wagyu beef because Wagyu beef is expensive beef and I'm told it is very, very nice. Uh, there are certain breeds of cattle that uh, their flesh... Uh, develops some um, intramuscular fat, uh, which uh, I think another term for that is marbled um, meat. And these particular breeds of cattle, they, they live very well. They get treated very, very nicely. Uh, they, uh, they get, they get grain-fed. And I'm told that uh, the uh, grain-fed beef around the Margaret River area in Western Australia, to go with their, uh, uh, their grain, their grain uh, they're also uh, fed nice uh, red wine as well. Uh, in Japan, uh, they add a beer and sake to the diet of these cattle. Now, I don't know if the cattle really appreciates that or not, but, but this is living the good life, isn't it? Uh, this is living the good life, but here's the catch. They only get fed uh, this sumptuous, these sumptuous meals uh, for, the, for the last 300 to 500 days of their lives. 
because after that comes the dinner plate. <laughs> right? And that's the, that's a beautiful image, isn't it? And it's the image that James paints here of, of, the, of the, these wealthy oppressors, uh, these rich exploiters, that they've lived a life of luxury and self-indulgence and yet they will be food for the dinner plate. They fatten themselves up for the slaughterhouse. You see, there is someone who controls the future and it's not the businessman with his strategic plan nor is it the rich man with his power over people. In chapter 5, verse 7, James now addresses the church. Uh, notice what he says there. He says, Be patient then, brothers, brothers and sisters. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Now, the word which is translated as the Lord's coming, it comes from a Greek word, I'll tell you about it, and you can blame Mike Rater for this. Uh, it's the Greek word parousia. And uh, in the ancient world, the, uh, the term parousia was used uh, specifically to describe uh, the visit of a, of a reigning monarch to a city within his or her dominion. Now, um, when Queen Elizabeth visits Australia, you, you kind of know that the head of state is in town, don't you? It's not quite like her first visit. Was it 1956 when I think one third of the population of Australia came out to see her? It's, not, it's a bit low-key these days, but you still know that the Queen has arrived. You know that the ruler has arrived when she's here. Well, imagine back in the ancient world. In the ancient world, uh, with, uh, with, with, with all of the fancy adornment, uh, with the entourage, with the, the grand regal procession, when the monarch arrived, you knew who was in town. Now, when Jesus first came, he came as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. Uh, he grew up as a, as a carpenter uh, in the town of Nazareth. His glory was veiled. It was only progressively revealed over time and, uh, and only to some. But when he comes again, like a king visiting one of his cities, like a Perusia, there will be no shadow of doubt. It will be clear that the king has arrived. Every knee, says Paul in Philippians, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that he's actually Lord. In chapter 5, verse 3, the wealthy oppressor is said to have hoarded up his wealth in the, what days does it say? In the, in the last days. Now, the Bible teaches that the history of the universe is punctuated by two key events. The first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. 
And the period in between the first and second coming of Jesus is referred to in the Bible as the last days, um, which means that you and I live in the last days, which means that the rich oppressors in James chapter 5 lived in the last days. And the great implication of the last days is that it means that there is a final day. There is a final day, a day when the king returns. And for some, that will be a dreadful day. For those whose trust is placed in those things which are transient, which are passing, which are material, for those whose trust is in themselves, for those whose trust is not placed in King Jesus, it will be a day of judgment. Now, um, I understand that gold and silver, that um, amongst their various properties, that gold and silver do not corrode. Is that right? I've got some very, very old silver at home. It's got no signs of corrosion on it whatsoever. They don't corrode. And it's, that's part of their value. Uh, in verse 3, if you have a look at verse 3, you see what's happened to, in verse 2 as well. You see what it says about the rich man's wealth. It says, your wealth has rotted, your moths, moths have eaten your clothes. Well, we know how that happens. Your gold and silver are corroded. They're corroded. You see, um, he thought that was a safe investment, didn't he? You know, uh, but, but the destruction of his gold and silver, uh, th that which he thought was indestructible, that which normally is indestructible in the sense of corrosion, that its destruction is actually so guaranteed that James can speak as if it's already happened. You notice that? He doesn't say your gold and silver will corrode. It has corroded. He can speak of something in the future with such great certainty as to say it's already happened. It's like when uh, you ask a reliable person, would you do a job for me? And they say, done. You know, be confident, it will be done. Uh, <clears throat> as good as gold? No. James says, as good as gone. <laughs> That's what's happened to his wealth. And the corrosion of his ill-gotten gain, we're told, will actually be fuel for the fire of his flesh on the day Jesus returns. The coming again of Jesus is a great motivator for anybody to repent. It is a good reason to repent. It is a great reason to humbly confess our sin to seek forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross and to start living for God instead of living for ourselves. The second coming of Jesus is a great motivator for repentance. But now as we move into the final part of this passage, in verses 7 to 11, we see that the second coming of Jesus is also a great motivator for perseverance. You see how he now changes the way that he addresses his readers? 
Uh, what does he call them? He calls them brothers, doesn't he? Brothers and sisters. He's talking about family now. You know, um, sometimes life is tough for Christians. Uh, we, uh, like all people this side of the fall, we suffer from sickness and poverty and other difficulties. We may also suffer from persecution because of the fact that we name the name of Jesus. And when things are not going great, how then should we live? Because we can be tempted, can't we? We can be tempted to, to not stand firm. We can be tempted to, to drift away from God. Or instead of being joyful, we can be tempted to become dissatisfied, um, judgmental, grumblers, critics, even against one another, even maybe against the rich person who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's in our church. But James says, stand firm, don't grumble, and instead, be patient. It's easier to be patient when you can see, when you're confident that there's an end in sight, isn't there? Isn't it? It's like when you go to the bank, you know, and you, 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 you count, counting down how many people are in front of you before you get to the teller. You can be patient because you know that the end is in sight. Uh, we used to uh, <clears throat> live in Inverell, and around the town of Inverell, some of the farmers were, uh, were moving into um, producing olives. And uh, they cleared out their land and were um, planting olive plantations. Uh, once you um, uh, plant the seed for the olive tree, uh, it takes seven years before you'll see your first olive. Is that right, Anna and Ahmed? <laughs> That's right. <coughs> Uh, seven years. That takes patience, doesn't it? And then, uh, you know, what about if you're a wine, uh, a winemaker and you produce the wine, put it in the barrels, and you've got to wait for many, many years before uh, you, you get to taste it? Um, James uses that kind of illustration here where in verse 7 he says, be patient and look at the farmer you know, who waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and the spring rains, because he knows it's going to happen. He knows that there will be a harvest. He's just got to be patient in the meantime. Um, in the face of adversity, James encourages us to look to that kind of example of the, pa of the farmer and be patient. Or in verse 11, he encourages us to look to the example of the prophets and particularly to, to Job. Um, remember Job? Uh, he suffered adversity, adversity, adversity. Job, who had lost everything which was precious to him. He lost his family. He lost his possessions. He lost his health. But yet in the rubble and the dust of his mortal life, Stripped of all worldly objects of trust, Job knew in whose hands the future was held. Job knew who controlled 
the future. I know, said Job, with prophetic insight, in chapter 19 of Job, I know, he said, that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see my God. I, I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me, declared Job. Brothers and sisters, our society and our culture keeps on telling us that we need more money. The word of God tells us that we need more trust. That's what we need. I think the Americans got it right when they designed their currency. On every American note and every American coin are four words, in God we trust. Now, I'm not sure how many of them actually believe that. However, the meaning of that and the implication of that and the warning of that is that the dollar, when you look at it, is saying, do not trust in me. Do not trust in me. Do not trust in the dollar. It's not worthy of your trust. The stock market could crash. The exchange rate could tumble. You could be robbed. You could even die. In fact, here's news for you. You will die. Do not trust in your plans. Do not trust in your money. Trust in the one who alone controls your life. Trust in the one in whose hands alone is held your eternal destiny. Trust in the one who loves you so much that he did not even spare his only son, but sent his son Jesus to die for you. Remember the Lord Jesus, who though he was rich beyond our imagining, yet for our sakes he chose to become poor so that we through his poverty will become truly rich with all of the riches of heaven, with all of the riches of a relationship with God, with all of the riches of being seated around his heavenly throne forever and ever and ever declaring his praises. Our lives are just like a blink in the light of eternity. Store up treasures not here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, so therefore is your heart, said our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the Lord Jesus and let's commit ourselves to being people who serve not our plans but rather who serve his plans. And we know that his plan for us is to do the good things, the godly things, the sometimes seemingly small things that we can do day by day, week by week, until that great day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, until that day when we shall meet him face to face. So let's commit to serving his plans. Shall we pray?
Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the fact that you are sovereign, that you are in control of life. Father, we acknowledge that we have depended too much on ourselves and on our own resources, that we have not said, if it be your will, we will do this or that or even live. Father, help us to repent and help us to see the great value of living for you and trusting in your plans for this world and your plans for our lives. Father, we pray that we would live godly and upright lives in this present age as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus. Help us to do the good things that you desire us to do. Help us to stand firm. Help us to be joyful rather than grumblers for we have a sure and a certain hope. And Father, for that we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.